Welcome to Science Talk, the more or less weekly podcast of Scientific American, hosted on April 21st, 2011. I'm Steve Mursky. In recent days, the Scientific American crew has traveled far and wide to cover a variety of scientific conferences. On April 19th, I gathered four members of the staff to talk about what they'd learned. Let's go around the table. Everybody introduce themselves and say the name of the meeting that you were just at last week. I'm Robin Lloyd. I'm the news editor for our website, and I attended the annual meeting of the Association for Healthcare Journalists. Kate. I'm Kate Wong. I cover archaeology and paleontology for the magazine, and I was covering two conferences last week, the annual meeting of the Paleoanthropology Society and the American Association of Physical Anthropologists. Michael. I'm Michael Moyer. I cover technology for the magazine, and I was at a conference up at MIT, a 150th anniversary celebration called Computation and the Transformation of Practically Everything. And Christine. I'm Christine Gorman. I'm the health and medicine editor at Scientific American, and last week I was also at the Association for Healthcare Journalists Conference. Kate, talk about the meetings you were at and why they were so interesting. Well, there were a lot of interesting findings that were announced at these meetings, but two in particular really, really come to mind. Um, the first one was the discovery of a massive set of footprints discovered in northern Tanzania. It's about 350 footprints belonging to people, uh, modern, early modern humans who lived 120,000 years ago. And the footprints kind of fall into to two sets. In one set, it appears that uh, people were walking at different speeds and they don't, weren't necessarily doing anything together, kind of doing their own thing. And the other set, which is of about 18 people, um, everybody seems to have been walking the same pace uh, toward the southwest. And by comparing these footprints um, with footprints of people living today, the scientists were able to ascertain about how many um, males and females were in the group, how many children were in the group, and it's really the first opportunity that scientists have had to look at the composition of a social group um, in early modern humans from that time period. This is a really big deal. It's it's a really big deal. It's the only kind of evidence that uh, one can study to to get that kind of insight into into the structure of a social group. Structure of the group, because we see men, women, and children. It's a behavioral snapshot as well. It is because if they can get a really you know there's still some of the footprints. It's not they're not totally clear on male or female, but once they're able to to settle those numbers down. Um, you know, you could you could start to make some interesting, draw some interesting inferences about behavior. If you have uh, more females than males, for example, which is what they think they have right now, um, that could lead to some some interesting hypotheses about um, the the social structures of people living at that time. Wait, you, you say that the only way you could find out about these social structures is by finding footprints. I would think that it would be a lot more effective if you were to have some sort of Pompeii-like site where you have everyone just kind of buried under ash in some cataclysmic event, although I, I understand those are hard to find, but I would think so were footprints. Yeah, I guess, you know, what's interesting about this is that you have a moment in time. These seem to have been formed and covered over very quickly. So you really do have an identifiable group as opposed to an accumulation of signals from possibly many different groups 
um, you know, who were buried in a, in a catastrophic situation. We'll come back and talk about more from the meeting. Well, let's hear from Michael for a little bit about uh, your MIT conference. So this was um, less of a standard scientific conference where scientists come and present results for the first time. This was a lot of um, uh, congratulatory MIT backslapping of, uh, you know, haven't we done a lot of great things in the last 150 years and with computation, specifically the last 50, which is true. So many of the, the pioneers of um, computation and complexity have been based at MIT. But it was fun. You had some presentations that kind of dealt with the history of uh, computing along with shorter presentations from, you know, as I was referring to them as the young bucks, the young uh, assistant professors at MIT who were just doing some really interesting uh, new research um, that's kind of taking the field forward. Were there any buckets? There were buckets, yes. There were a number of buckets, and you – uh, specifically in the younger generation, um, there were there were a number of them. Maria Zuber, who she's in the um, geog- geology department, and she was showing how computation and computational methods have taught us a lot about the history of the Earth, um, and how without these you know very high end um, computing systems, we wouldn't be able to know and check hypotheses such as the event that came at where Mars sized rock came and hit the early Earth and split off the moon. But it was it was all kind of how computation has been able to uh, advance geology. And that was a sub-theme going through all these things about how computation is, you know, obviously today isn't just for computation's sake, but it's really pushing so many um, scientific disciplines forward. There were um, people, Eric Lander came up from the Broad Institute, and he was talking about how, you know, it used to be that biology was looking through microscopes and classifying stuff and how he hated biology when he was a, a young student. He just like, couldn't understand why everyone would memorize all this stuff. But now biology is information. That's it. It's doing these these genomic sequences. It's finding the patterns. And this, is, this kind of stuff would just be impossible without the level of computation that we have today. Absolutely. Christine, let's talk about the healthcare meeting. I know there are a lot of interesting policy and other there are, there. and um, it's a it's an interesting group because the association of which I'm a member is a is an organization for healthcare journalists specifically. So the meeting is by journalists for journalists, and as a result, there's if you will, there's been some pre-selection. Everybody who presents at it um, has typically you know, been vetted by a journalist who thinks, you know, this is a very interesting area. And so when I was listening about uh, computational um, tools, you're actually seeing that in healthcare as well when you look at some of the data mining um, initiatives and, and so forth. And one of the speakers, uh, Don Berwick, who is head of uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, talked about a new website uh, healthindicators.gov, I believe it was, uh, where they, um, the CMS is making available information about health outcomes for particular areas in the country. And so you can actually look up health outcomes in your neighborhood. Um, there's a lot of this that's happening now. Uh, there was a, a report earlier this year where all of the counties in the 50 states are ranked within their state um, by their um, their health measures. And I, of course, immediately had to look up New York 
and the top county is Putnam, and the the one in last place is uh, the where Bronx. I live, the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, getting back to the uh, association, so there was certainly a lot of technology, uh, data mining um, with the the Berwick talk. Um, but also uh, some in very intriguing um, social sciences. Uh, one of the, the panels that I went to was on gunshot wounds in children in a neighborhood in Philadelphia, and I was just astonished at the mapping software that is used to try to understand on an epidemiological level why do some kids get shot or what increases your risks of getting shot? I think, you know, obviously sometimes it's just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but but some places are by definition the wrong place. Some places are by definition the wrong place to go. And it's not necessarily the entire neighborhood. It's maybe one part of the neighborhood or the wrong time in that part of the neighborhood. And what um, the, the researchers did was they, they took um, – mapping software, even more complex than and more detailed than what you can get on Google Maps. And with every kid who was brought into the emergency room at this one particular hospital, worked with them to trace their path over the course of the previous, of the 24 hours prior to the gunshot. And so they had, and, and it's interesting because the kids clearly understood how to project from above, you know, and under, and still understand what neighbor, and they would trace, well, from this time to that time I did this and I did that, mm-hmm. and then they traced their whole path and found some very interesting links, including um, that hearing gunshots does not increase your risk of being shot. Mm. Um, seeing somebody knifed, increases your risk of being shot, and increasing exposure to alcohol over the course of the day dramatically increases your, your risk of being shot, or these kids' risks of being mm-hmm. shot. So a lot of very interesting ways of using data, um, both, you know, the genomics that uh, stuff that we're used to. Uh, Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, was there talking about cancer genes and mapping cancer genes, but also mapping, you know, geography and relating that to health over time. So it was a, it was a fascinating conference. That's so interesting because, you know, the most famous example is probably still Jon Snow and the cholera. Yes, and using the pump handles. The pump handles and using maps of London to figure out exactly where this cholera was coming from, and, and he did. What's interesting about that is that people disbelieved him, mm-hmm. and he very carefully and very meticulously by hand um, drew maps and put dots of all the cholera cases and then looked at the wells, because in those days people didn't have tap water in their homes. They would go to a well and and pump it, you know, pump the water up from underground. And what he was saying was some of the wells were contaminated, and he then proved it after he identified from his maps which wells he thought were contaminated. He proved it by taking the pump handle off the well. And then all of the cases of, of the cases of cholera in that area suddenly dropped dramatically. So that was the proof. And it's, you know, the use of maps in epidemiology in many ways has been very arcane and the providence of, of, of 
totally specialized experts, but now what's happening with some of the new data that's being made available, the databases that are being made available by the government and by others, anyone can do this kind of, of mapping for their own neighborhood. And in fact, one of the panels at the conference was in effect teaching journalists how to use databases and maps. Because the thing about a database is if you look just at the data, it's not visually very interesting and you don't really see things. But once you mash the database with the map, you can make all kinds of uh, correlations and conclusions. And the other thing you're talking about, the outcomes, that could be of real interest to the general public because let's say you need to go in for a, a hip transplant. You might you might check out your hospital, but you might also want to see maybe you live in a place where you just really don't want this done. You're going to it's worth it for you to travel to some place else in the country where the outcomes are significantly better. Well, now that's an interesting point, um, Steve, because we often sort of get tunnel vision thinking only about the operation, but. You have to remember that that's an entire episode of care, which is the new phrase du jour, um, that it's not just about the operation, it's also about the aftercare, the care you get at home. And so it's really the, in many ways, the nursing care, the transitional care afterwards, the preparatory care beforehand. And so just focusing on the piece in the operating room mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. You, even there, you have to think about, well, what are the infection rates right. in the hospital? And that was something else that Don Berwick talked about at the meeting, that this information about hospital infection rates, so it, let me be clear, the, the term, the technical term is hospital-acquired infection. And um, basically, all of those are, theoretically at least, preventable. You should not get an infection just by going into the hospital and being treated. Now, there are reasons why that happens, but CMS, the Medicare um, system, is, is starting, has put hospitals on notice that they have to get their infection rates down, and if they don't, they're not going to get reimbursed. Eventually, so now that information is coming in anonymously, if you will. You can't find out which hospitals, but eventually that will become public information. So there again, a use of data to let people know, you know, what's going on in in their community. Well, you can really just acquire as much data as you want now, throw it into computers and have stuff fall out that you, as you said, wouldn't just see by eyeballing it. The, and and yet there is a funny kind of data overload that can happen because if you can't measure it, then you don't always see it. And some of these things, so it's it might be easier to measure infection rates, for example, but how do you measure the kinds of relationships that happen in a neighborhood that that keep kids healthy? The um, uh, there's a, a County in uh, Kansas, Wyandotte County, um, part of Kansas City, Kansas, that has the worst um, health outcomes in the state of Kansas. And their mayor, Joe Reardon, has just launched this whole um, campaign 
called, I think it's Healthy Neighborhoods Initiative or something like that. They want to see what they can do to make people healthier because they already have fairly good access. There's the um, medical, you know, center in Kansas City, and there's a number of clinics and things like that. And what they found was they needed to improve the availability of affordable fruits and vegetables in poorer neighborhoods, education starting well before kindergarten in terms of various cognitive things, and then um, health promoters, that is to say, um, not technically trained but nonetheless somewhat trained people from the community who teach their neighbors how to pick the right foods, how to follow up, you know, how to take antibiotics so that you don't stop at the end, you know, all the things that um, help promote health. So it, there is very good research to show that most of the difference in health outcomes um, is, is non-medical in nature, that only about 10% has to do with access to health care, and the other 90% has to do with education, literacy, um, the relationships that you have, diet, um, and, and the structural environment, how safe you feel. You know, if, it's great to tell people to exercise if they can't go out right. because they're afraid of getting shot. Right, right. <laughs> Well, that, that human angle that you were talking about in terms of healthcare delivery and then the web, the connections among various parts of the system and people's social worlds was reflected in the session that I wanted to talk about, also at Association of Healthcare Journalists. And the session that I, one of the sessions I liked and I wrote about was neat because one of the main speakers was David Blumenthal, who was with the Obama administration for the last two years and he was hired to be the national coordinator for health information technology. But basically what that means is he was hired to implement the part of the stimulus that was allocated toward electronic health records or electronic medical records. And there's a move toward calling them electronic health records because it indicates more so that they're available throughout the healthcare system and industry and that they're a piece of data that we can use in aggregate to start to look at trends across the population and trends in regions when the flu comes in, for instance, or something like that. Or drug, you know, adverse drug reactions can be tracked if we are all entering our data in electronic health records. So anyway, the surprising statistic that Blumenthal gave us was that at this point, you know, and I found this interesting because I've been reading various stories on this beat for the past couple of years saying that you know, it's going to be a lot of technology problems. This is a huge information technology problem. And he said, actually, the, the, the problem is going to be human. It's going to be cultural. Getting physicians and healthcare systems to, um, to, to, to implement the, the software and to embrace it. Um, and the stat that I just forecast, I would tell you, is that he said that about 20 to 30 percent of all primary care physicians in the nation are now using at least a basic electronic health care system. And that's a big deal um, because, I mean, just at the individual level, um, the private practice level, it costs you probably around $100,000 to set up one of these systems, not to mention 20 hours of training, one of the speakers said. Um, so... On the other hand, there were some stats given out at the session that said, well, you know, uh, first of all, there's uh, some kind of incentive that the bill provides for 
taking this leap right now. Later, there will be penalties starting, I think, 2014 or 15 for not implementing electronic systems. But at any rate, right now, the incentive is anywhere from uh, $40,000 to $60,000, a rebate. Um, And then also, there was another stat saying that um, folks who implement electronic health care systems are uh, having an increase, a net increase in their annual income, at least at the private practice level, of $40,000 a year, which is significant. And that just comes by virtue of billing for things you weren't billing for before because you're logging every single procedure that you are undertaking. And in the past, there was so much talking and communicating that you, know, you didn't write everything down. But the entering of the data of each procedure that's conducted triggers the billing. And so there's better accounting done and then better income. So the, the lesson is that electronic health records drive the cost of health care up? Exactly. Right. I know. And that came up actually in another session I went to, which is, uh, which was basically looking at the, uh, Massachusetts healthcare reform effort, which has been fairly successful in terms of delivering health care, but has done nothing to address costs. There are no incentives built into that. Uh, bill into that law that's been in place for four years now in Massachusetts to drive, to, you know, to, 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 to incent hospitals and, and private practices to reduce their costs. Um, however, the ACA, the healthcare reform that's been passed at the federal level, does have some measures that incent hospitals and private practices and healthcare systems to reduce their costs. So there's some hope for that. And, you know, it's also good to know that one of the things that came up at this session is that the federal reform bill is largely based on the Massachusetts reform bill. So it's very interesting, and that's what we were kind of focusing on this session, to look at how what they did right and what could be done better in Massachusetts. And um, actually, it was pretty hopeful about what might happen um, once implementation unfolds further in, in, at the le- federal level, because um, they, they have such have had such success with um, coverage of the population. There's only 3,000 children left in the state of Massachusetts who aren't covered now by health insurance. Um, they went from 94 percent. Already, they were a leader in terms of having people in the state insured. They went from 94 percent to 98 percent coverage. So, um, you know, it's a question of uh, controlling costs in the future, um, helping people find primary care is still a problem in the state of Massachusetts, um, and um, trying to figure out how to find a way to help the people who fall through the cracks. There was one example given by a public radio reporter of a maid whose employer did offer insurance. She made $1,500 a month, and the insurance would have cost her $1,600 a month. Well, obviously, she's not going to. She's not going to take that option. She's able to appeal to the state and not get assessed with a tax uh, penalty for that. But, you know, there's still those cases. A different way to look at it with the same numbers, because it might not seem that impressive if you've gone from coverage of 94% of kids to 98% of kids. Well, that's the whole population, by the way. The whole population, okay. But the other way to look at it is of the uninsured, now two-thirds of them are insured. Right. So that's just a more positive approach to the same numbers. And you have a blog item that you've published on the website about the uh, the medical records. Yeah. So people can look for that on our website. Um, Kate, some human evolution stuff at the meeting about uh, arguments about some new fossils, about whether it's a direct ancestor to, to Homo sapien or whether it's a an australopithecine? What's going on with that? Yeah, so the the most exciting news to come out of the two meetings I I was at last week 
um, concerned some fossils that were that were announced uh, from South Africa last year. Um, there are two partial skeletons dating to around 1.95 million years ago, and they were given they were assigned to a new species of human, Australopithecus sediba, and it's a funny species because it it has a lot of traits in common with Australopithecines, like Lucy, um, who who lived a little more than three million years ago, um, and early members of our own genus, Homo. And so what these guys said last year um, was that hey, maybe we have finally um, a, a good candidate species for the to to be the ancestor of our genus. And this year at the meetings, they released uh, results from new analyses that they've done that go a long way towards supporting that assertion. Um, and, and, and one of the there – were, there were two really interesting findings that are kind of linked. Um, one is that they – when they uh, analyzed the, the, the skull and the shape of the brain case to get an idea of what the brain of this uh, human ancestor looked like, um, it's really tiny. It's only about 430, an estimated 430 cubic centimeters, which is about a third the size of our own brain. Um, and yet, at the same time, there are parts of its brain, particularly in the frontal lobes, where the organization is very much like what you see in early members of, of our own genus. So it's weird, tiny, little, almost chimp-sized brain, a little bigger than a chimp, um, but with a very human-like organization in, in a critical part of the brain. How so, can they see organization in the fossil? The, Dense in like the, the skull? You know, <laughs> I, I, well, yeah, well, there, actually, there, yeah, there are. They yeah, they're, they're, the lobes in the brain kind of make dents on the yeah. inside of the skull. Okay. All right. And I was so, just curious. Yeah, I, d- I can't. I just can't say more than, than that. Then you just see the shape of the yeah. the external shape of the of the frontal region. But yeah, basically, what they do is they. They CT scan and synchrotron scan mm. these skulls right. and then make these virtual um, endocasts, they call them, to, to um, show what the, to reveal what the brain looked like. Um, so you've got this tiny but advanced brain in Australopithecus sediba. And then at the same time, when they were looking at the pelvis, um, and this caused a big stir at the meeting, um, they, so there's been this, this idea that, um, Lucy's species, um, you know, the, the, the changes that you get in the pelvis from the last common ancestor of humans and chimps um, w- were to sort of uh, make us good at, at upright walking. And then further changes to the pelvis that you see in the evolution of our genus were to accommodate babies with larger brains. Now, the weird thing about Sediba is it has a very human-like pelvis, but it has a tiny brain. So obviously there something's some kind of other selective force is acting on the pelvis that has nothing to do with the expansion of brain size that you see in our genus. So that's going to be um, a topic of discussion for months and years to come. So the pelvis looks like it was uh, in a condition ready to accommodate a larger brain. Exactly, exactly. And yet we know that the babies must have had small brains because the adult size is so tiny. Right. And and evolution isn't predictive. It's right. really only reactive. So it's, it, it, you know, when you think about our pride in our brains, you know, in our big brains, and then here is a case where, well, actually, that's a an accident. And, um, you know, wasn't the, the, the increasing size of the brain 
that that uh, that gave the pressure that women with larger pelvises that could accommodate bigger heads right as survived. if the, the pelvis was there and so children with larger heads and their mothers with the genes apparently for producing children's children with larger heads both survived but only because that larger pelvis was was already, it was there. already there. It was already there. That for some other reason. Yeah. So this Very is like the, the big chicken egg problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, they always thought that that the two were were kind of went hand in hand because the the available fossils of of early Homo all had the modified pelvis and a bigger brain. So mm-hmm. they just figured that they you know basically went together. Mm-hmm. And and now you have the the you know homo looking pelvis, but so a small brain. Is the implication that we first walked upright and then got a big brain? From well, I, I I interviewed uh, one fellow who's not who wasn't part of this um, analysis, and his thinking was that um, you know this this may suggest that it and this has been a debate that's been going on for years that that. You know, by the time you have Lucy, you've got a hominid that walks upright a lot when it's on the ground, but still spends a fair amount of time in the trees. So that's phase one. And then phase two, which is presumably, I guess, when you get into Homo in this scenario, you are, you, you your, your pelvis has been so modified, um, and other features too have been, have been, um, comparably modified that you're no longer uh, you've abandoned life in the trees and you are a dedicated uh, bipedal creature living on the ground. And you also have a blog item up on our website about this, right? Yes, I have a blog item on the footprints and a blog item on this uh, these new findings about Australopithecus sediba. Excellent. Anything else from MIT that you want to talk about, Michael? You know, there, there was just such a wide variety of presentations. It's um, hard to kind of narrow it down into if there, there were any um, real big overarching themes. I mean, there were people there from the worlds of finance talking about uh, uh, the big problem that we had last year with the flash crash, which uh, people remember was in the, the course of 13 minutes on the stock exchange. Um, there was some sort of correlated uh automated trading strategies, which drove down the price of various stocks from $35 to three cents. You know, <laughs> obviously this was, this was not people sitting there on the phone yelling to sell. It was the computers <laughs> saying, Oh boy, well, if this happens, we should all do it. Um, and this is a big problem as so much of our trading now is automated. And, and we are talking on the anniversary of, uh, when Skynet takes over the, the earth. That's April right. 19th, according to the Terminator movie. Is that of this year? No, well, just I, maybe it's this year. I don't remember, but it's this date anyway. Okay. And to, and the market dropped about two hundred points this morning too. <laughs> uh, well, it's it is it's all the computer's fault. And so, <laughs> I mean, it's true. And well, we, they're now trying to figure out ways to um, come up with more, um, I guess, uh, better circuit breakers uh, so that these sorts of things don't happen. What would be best is if we kind of knew the ways in which all these various firms' trading strategies were correlated, which we don't know because these trading firms do not uh, divulge their strategies because that's their core intellectual property and the way that they make gazillions of dollars um, all the time uh, online. And so there was some talk about being able to use new um, uh, advances in encryption 
at the meeting so that you would be able to kind of analyze people's strategies to look for these correlations without necessarily exposing the strategies themselves, right. which I thought was was really kind of interesting. You know, today is also the anniversary of the death of Darwin, speaking of human evolution with Kate. And um, just to finish up, uh, am I wrong, but is the place you're most likely to find a fist fight at a conference, one of these evolution, human evolution uh, anthropology conferences where people are arguing over whether that bone represents a new species or just a, an example of a, of a known species or whether some artifact is, again, a new species or some kind of a pathological example of an old species? Yeah, you know, paleoanthropology is sort of uh, um, infamous for its fights. Uh, there was one heated argument that I that I witnessed at the meeting, um, and it concerned uh, whether some uh, marks on animal bones that were around that are around 3.4 million years old from Ethiopia, whether or not they're actually butchery marks inflicted by members of Lucy's species, or whether they're just uh, the result of having been trampled um, by herds of animals and. Uh, so that there, there were some, some heated words, um, exchanged there. But that's the only, is that the only fight I saw? No, that's not the only, that's the only <laughs> one I want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so what do they do? How do they fight? I mean, do they use, uh, it's clubs? clubs? <laughs> yeah, it's ugly. <laughs> but you know, I mean, this, a really sort of interesting dynamic that was in play at this meeting, which has to do with those Australopithecus sediba fossils was that, um, the, the leader of that project, actually brought casts of all of the fossils that they have recovered and prepared so far to the meeting, even ones that they haven't described formally in a journal yet, and was letting anybody see them, inspect them, you know, I mean, from from students to, um, you know, people with conflicting ideas. And that is something that you just do not see every day in this field. And it was it was just really interesting to hear so many people singing the praises um, of this guy Lee, Lee Berger um, for being so open with this material. It's it's um, it's a real change. So people share their uh, interpretations or raw data when they're publishing a peer review article. Obviously, the peers need that stuff to review. But they don't show the actual fossils to each other. Sometimes they don't even show the casts to each other. Well, I'd like to thank uh, you, my cast of experts here today. Pretty smooth, huh? (laughs) And uh, we look forward to more meeting updates to come. Thanks for sitting in on the conversation. We'll be back next time with a peek at what's behind door number one, or two, or three, as we look once again at the infamous Monty Hall problem. In the meantime, get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the blog items and other reports written by the members of the roundtable you just heard about the subjects we discussed. You can also check out our new in-depth report on the science of tornadoes. I am the great and powerful. Who are you? For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.